0: All right, this morning we look at Psalm 1. It's that brief and familiar passage that stands at the front of all of the Old Testament poetic literature, and it is the Old Testament description of true manhood. And it reads a lot like a list of the chief qualities that we as leaders and men need to cultivate. And it's familiar, I know, to all of you, some of the youngest among us, may even have this already memorized. But I want to sort of take a close look at it with you this morning from the perspective of our conference theme, leadership and masculinity. Psalm 1, so turn there. I'll begin reading these familiar words. It's a short psalm, so I'll just read the whole thing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, notice that this psalm starts out exactly like a beatitude. Blessed is the man. And so this first psalm opens with the very same expression as our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And the word that's translated blessed there is a Hebrew word esher. And it's an interesting expression because it comes from a root that speaks of happiness And it appears in a form that could be either a noun or an adjective, and the construction is plural. So it's a purposely intensive word with joyful connotations. It speaks of the multiplied blessings that rest on the righteous man. And it's also a plural of magnitude, which means it's designed to emphasize the, the vast scope of inexpressible blessings that come with what this psalm describes if you wanted to translate this first line literally you might say behold the number and the magnitude of happy blessings that rest upon the man and by the way whenever you see this word blessed or blessed in scripture the idea that is being conveyed is is something akin to the the concept of happiness But it it is not the kind of shallow, giddy, flippant, sort of hyper-emotional frivolity that most people today tend to associate with happiness. It's not about comedy. It's not about laughter. It's about an internal joy that rises above even in the midst of the worst sufferings. It's a, a deep and abiding joyfulness that overflows with this sort of exhilarating bliss It's a great incomprehensible gladness and sense of well-being that just simply cannot be overthrown by the circumstances of this life, no matter how bad life gets. So this is true happiness, minus everything that is frivolous or silly or superficial that might come to your mind when you think of the word happiness. Now, here's something that we would do well to remember, both here and in the Sermon on the Mount— True godliness is said to result in happiness, blessedness. Nothing in scripture ever suggests that believers are supposed to be humorless, sort of gloomy, sullen, dismal types who never laugh but are always serious about everything. You know what I mean? Some Christians seem to have the notion that if you're really spiritual, you have to be always glum or stern faced, you know, sort of a solemn, monkish type as if happiness were somehow carnal. But when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, the first three things he names are love, joy, and peace. And he goes on to stress, against such things there is no law. Nothing wrong with being happy. In fact, Christians are not supposed to be joyless. It is not a sign of, of godliness to always be in ill humor. That is typically a sign of someone who's not Truly abiding in Christ. Now we express our joy different ways at different times. I recently spoke to a woman who's going through a very severe trial, and some some counselor who was like Job's counselor uh, said to her uh, that he actually shamed her because she wasn't giving evidence of joy in the midst of her trial, and uh, that goes against what Scripture teaches as well. In Hebrews thirteen, we're instructed to. To follow the leadership of our church so that we make them joyful and and destroy their joy. So there are things in life that do threaten our joy and undermine it, but it abides anyway. It stays there. We're not ever joyless. And in fact, joylessness is typical of some someone who is not truly abiding in Christ. In John 15, verse 10 near the end of that famous passage about the vine and the branches, Jesus said this, Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And then he added this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So he's talking about the the deepest sort of profound sense of heavenly joy. He calls it my joy. It's, it's specific to deity, to Christ. It's the joy of the Son of God as he abides in his Father's love. And we enter into that joy through our union with him. And therefore, when Scripture says we're supposed to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, that's the joy it's talking about. So, and in fact, think about it. Why should Christians project only doom and gloom to the world. Joy, not misery, but joy is the mark of a truly spiritual person. And so whenever I meet someone who's, you know, too spiritual to laugh about anything, I'm always fearful about what's really going on inside that person's heart. And I would go even further. The only, only the committed Christian actually understands and experiences the purest kind of joy. It's that abiding joy. It's an eternal joy. And you can't have it unless you're a believer. That is precisely what Psalm 1:1 is teaching us. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And by the way, this applies to women too. This is one of those places where Scripture is clearly using a masculine noun, but the truth it gives us here is generic. So the godly person is blessed, meaning he or she is glad, filled with the joy of the Lord and, and the exuberance of life. Even in the midst of life's worst trials, only the godly individual can know this kind of blessedness. But the psalm specifically uses a masculine word, man. And this is important for men. A Puritan commentator named John Trapp wrote this about that psalm. He said, the psalmist says more to the point about true happiness In this short psalm, than any one of the philosophers or all of them put together, they did but beat about the bush. God here has put the bird into our hand. In other words, this is the key to authentic, lasting, abiding joy. Now, notice that in every verse of this psalm, the psalmist is making some point or another that contrasts the righteous individual, verses 1 through 3, with the ungodly person, verses 3 through 6. And these are the fundamental qualities that distinguish a godly man as opposed to a, an ungodly or carnally-minded man. And here's the central point I want you to take away from this psalm. This is what the psalmist aims to teach us in these six short verses. And it's a simple and rather obvious lesson, I think. But here's a one-sentence summary of, of the whole message of this psalm, the truly godly man is radically different in every way from a man who doesn't know God. That's the whole point of this psalm. If you're truly godly, a true man, like we talked about last night, you will be radically different from all the people around you who don't know God. Now, as I said, that sounds like an axiomatic truth, right? If you're a believer, you're going to be radically different. But the truth is, nowadays, this is a... This is an idea that many Christians seem to have trouble coming to grips with. But virtually every point in this psalm underscores uh, some different way that the godly person differs from the carnal man. And the overarching point is that the godly person is blessed while the wicked man is doomed. It's as simple as that starts out the godly man is blessed and the psalm ends on a note that says the wicked man is doomed. Those are the two choices and there really isn't gray area in between. You're in one category or the other. Verse 4, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Verse 5, the wicked will not stand in judgment. Verse 6, the way of the wicked will perish. He says it repeatedly but there are three more specific differences that I want to highlight than that central one. And here they are. This is the outline for everything I want to say this morning. So if you're taking notes, you can start now. Here is how the godly person differs from the ungodly. Number one, his convictions are different. I'll go over these again, so if you don't take them down right now, just get the idea. His convictions are different. Number two, his conduct is different. And number three, his character is different. And the psalmist outlines all of those. So let's look at them one at a time. Number one, his convictions are different. He follows a different counsel. He walks not according to the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's a great text for biblical counseling, isn't it, Dr. Stead? Walks not according to the counsel of the ungodly, Such a simple and obvious point, and yet there are so many people today who, when they're troubled, when they have difficulty, they go straight for the counsel of the ungodly. Notice that verse 1 is cast in negative language, and verse 2 then says essentially the same thing in positive language. The godly person, according to verse 1, walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He takes his counsel, verse 2, from the commandments of the Lord his God. His footsteps are ordered by the word of God and not by ungodly counselors. So this describes a person whose convictions are shaped and molded by scripture, not by public opinion, not by peer pressure. It doesn't matter to him that the way of sinners is the broad way of popular opinion. He's not looking for the most heavily traveled road. He's looking, he has a specific destination in mind, and that heavily traveled road, road doesn't go there. Now I want you to note that verse 1 actually contains a series of negative statements and there's a progression to them. The godly man walks not nor stands nor sits and that is precisely the progress of sin in the life of any carnal person. Those who walk according to ungodly counsel will eventually grow comfortable with the way of the ungodly so that they eventually find themselves more at home there, first standing in the avenue and then sitting in the seat of the ungodly. So here's the progression. Walking denotes the the start of the wicked man's journey. Standing suggests a kind of obstinacy. And sitting down shows that he is utterly confirmed in his carnality and he is at home in it. And in fact, the seat there speaks of a, a seat of authority. It's a common expression in Scripture. The the chair, like in a university environment, when you say some pre- professor is the chair of the English department, you're the chair of the counseling department, right, Dr. Stead? So he's the chair. doesn't mean he's somebody you sit in, but he's the chair, he's the head. I, I think of Matthew 23, verse 2, where Jesus said that the scribes sit in Moses' seat, the chair, the seat of scoffers, speaks of a place of influence and leadership among those who, who don't have anything but scorn for biblical righteousness. The man who begins walking according to ungodly counsel often has no intention of sitting in the seat of the scorner, but that is the inevitable progression of sin. Those who set out walking in the counsel of the ungodly probably have no intention ever of sitting in the seat of the scorner, but sin is very seductive, and those who walk in sins always find it's easy to grow comfortable with the environment, and they end up making themselves at home there. But here's a case where negative language is actually more powerful and more accurate than positive language would be. He could say that the godly man walks in the counsel of the godly, but that doesn't preclude the possibility that he tries to walk in the counsel of the ungodly also. You, you have people like that, in fact, lots of them nowadays, who hold somewhat selectively to biblical values, but they keep one ear tuned to the values and the fashions of the world, as if you could, could be led by the Spirit of God and keep in step with the world at the same time. You can't. In fact, that is an absolute impossibility. Uh, but most evangelicals today seem to believe that it's not only possible, they act as if it's the very height of spiritual wisdom to integrate as much as you can from the wisdom of this world, as if somehow that would enhance and improve the law of the Lord. You know, after all, the church needs to stay abreast of the times or we're going to lose the next generation, right? That's what that's what people say every new decade. And in fact, every new decade or so, a a new group of influential voices in the church will resurrect that same argument. We've got to stay in step with the world or we're going to lose the next generation. But whenever the church tries to walk the line between the counsel of the wicked and the law of the Lord, keeping, you know, one foot on each side of that line, look through church history. That never goes well. Never. And historically evangelical institutions of higher learning have been some of the chief offenders when it comes to caring too much about the counsel of the ungodly. Read the history of seminary education in America and I think you will see what I mean. It's very hard for seminaries and Christian universities to remain evangelical for more than a generation or two, chiefly because there's this driving impulse to to seek respect and approval from the secular academy. It's the besetting sin of people who become enthralled with university environment and and they crave the esteem of their peers. And when what's academically stylish is at odds with what is biblically true, that itch for human admiration is spiritually deadly. It's why you don't have many Christian universities these days that still hold to six-day creationism or you know the the idea, the very idea that men should be leaders in the church and not women. There aren't many seminaries left that will hold to that standard. Remember, 1 Corinthians 3.18, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, Paul says, and they are futile. So let no one boast in men. That's from Paul who actually had the most sophisticated education that was available in his time. He was a true intellectual. He says, this world's wisdom is foolishness with God. This is a prominent theme in Scripture, by the way. We are not, as Christians, we are not to allow unbelieving philosophers and scholars and politicians or moral theorists or, or counselors or any of the other pundits of this world shape our worldview, even in part. That is the role of Scripture, to shape our worldview, and that's what the psalmist is saying here. And so he makes it clear that the blessed man is the one who shuns the counsel of the ungodly at all times. And instead, he seeks his guidance from the law of the Lord. That's his one supreme authority. And it's also his joy and his meditation day and night. In fact, when he mentions the law of the Lord in verse 2, that's a reference to all of Scripture. That's not just the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. That verse always reminds me of the, uh, the Lord's advice to Joshua when Moses died. In fact, they've assigned me to preach on that text at the Shepherds' Conference. So I've been sort of beginning to look at it lately, where Joshua suddenly finds himself in charge of more than a million Israelites. And he must have felt very inadequate. Most of us would. All of us would, I think. And Joshua, frankly, probably wished for Moses to come back. But according to Joshua 1, God told Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. And he gave him his marching instructions. And Joshua, who had always followed Moses' leadership must have wondered, you know, where is he going to have access to the great wisdom that Moses had shown? And, and notice that God did not tell Joshua to pray to Moses for aid, which is what God surely would have told Joshua if there was any truth in the, the Catholic notion of prayer to the saints. But instead he said this, Joshua 1.8. This is another verse that some of you youngest guys have probably already remembered. Joshua 1.8 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, notice again, both that verse that I just read from Joshua 1 and our psalm, Psalm 1, both of them emphasize the idea of meditating on the law of God day and night. The very same expression you see here in verse two, it goes beyond merely, you know, reading a passage of scripture in your morning devotions and thinking, what does this mean to me? It goes even beyond memorizing a passage of scripture, but it speaks of a kind of careful meditation on the word of God where you mull it over. You don't just memorize it and repeat the sound of it. You think it through and you don't let it go because it's day and night. And notice also that Psalm 1 echoes the promise of success that you find in Joshua 1 8. Psalm 1 3 says, He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf doesn't wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. If so you want prosperity, here's how to do it shape your worldview according to the word of God and meditate on God's word constantly. And, and by the way, the prosperity he's talking about here is not merely material success it doesn't preclude material success but it's not a guarantee of that and and the point is not that if you're go- godly god will make you rich that's not the point the point is that if what you are pursuing is the will of god above all else if it's your goal to please god then god himself will guarantee that you succeed in that goal now get the picture of this man The law of God is central in his life. Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. Now, I said this refers to the whole of Scripture, not just the Decalogue. But on the other hand, it doesn't exclude the moral law either. Here's a man who is not under the curse of the law, but he is in the law, and he delights in it. He delights to be in it. It's his rule of life. He delights to meditate on it. He continues in it. He studies it by day and he thinks about it by night. He gets it in his heart and he carries it with him throughout the day. It's never completely out of his mind. But even in those moments of leisure, his mind returns to the word and he ponders it deeply. This is a discipline more of us need to cultivate. The word translated meditate here is an interesting one. The Hebrew word can also convey All of these meanings, to discuss, to dispute, to murmur, to mutter, to speak, to study, to talk, to ponder. All of those ideas are in this word. And uh, it's the same word used in Psalm 37, verse 30, where it says, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, where the word used for meditate here is the same word translated utters there. So uh, the idea is that the righteous person not only fills his thoughts with the word of God, his speech is filled with it as well. There's a very strong verbal emphasis in the meaning of the Hebrew word here. Augustine translated Psalm 1-2 like this, In his law he chatters day and night. It's an interesting translation. And I think it gets part of the idea that's buried in that word. Now, I have to say, I think meditate is the proper translation here because this is what he's talking about. But the fact remains that the man whose life is ordered around the word of God, the way it's described here, who meditates in it constantly, he will find that it affects not only what he thinks about, but also what he talks about. Martin Luther said this about Augustine's translation of this verse. Luther said this. It's a beautiful metaphor As chattering is the employment of birds, so a continual conversing in the law of the Lord ought to be the employment of man. He says, But I cannot worthily and fully set forth the gracious meaning and force of this word, for this meditating consists first in a careful observing of the words of the law, then in a comparing of the different scriptures, which is a certain delightful hunting, nigh rather a playing with stags in the forest, where the Lord furnishes us with the stags and opens to us their secret coverts. And from this kind of employment, there comes forth at length a man well-instructed in the law of the Lord to speak unto the people. I love the way Luther pictures that. In his view, you can tell he's talking about hunting and playing with stags in the forest. It's a very manly way to occupy your time. I love the imagery. Here's a man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. It shapes his convictions. It molds his desires. It also steers his conduct and frames his character. And all of that makes it, makes him different from the ungodly, different in every way. And that gets us to my second point. Here's a second way the godly person differs from the ungodly. First, his convictions are different. Second, his conduct is different. He stands in a different way. Now, I mentioned that that the imagery of the ungodly standing in the way of sinners speaks of a kind of obstinacy. This is a stubborn rebellion against the Lord's righteousness. But the goodly man is portrayed with a different kind of obstinacy, a sanctified obstinacy. He is fixed and steadfast he will not be moved as david wrote in psalm sixteen, eight. i have set the lord always before me because he is at my right hand i shall not be moved speaks of a, a righteous inflexibility that we are encouraged to cultivate first corinthians fifteen, fifty-eight. be steadfast immovable always abounding in the word of the work of the lord knowing that the lord in the lord your labor is not in vain Uh, psalm 112 says the same thing actually three verses in a row listen to psalm 112 verses six through eight the righteous will never be moved his heart is firm his heart is steady he will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries now let's be candid about this the world especially our culture today does not like an uncompromising person who is that resolute especially about the truth of god's word Verse 10 of Psalm 112 says the wicked man sees it and he's angry. It's true. Never been more true than it is now. Steadfast immovability is one of those virtues, true manly virtues that has lost its luster in these postmodern times. It seems like evangelical opinion is constantly in flux and people love to have it that way. We're blown about by every wind of doctrine and people think that's great. It's not. I had a good friend in the 1990s who seemed to like revamping his entire doctrinal position as often as possible. He was a fairly well-known speaker in those days in the evangelical world, and he would undergo a major paradigm shift every five years or so. He started out as an Arminian, and then he embraced Calvinism and within a short time moved to hyper-Calvinism, and then he renounced hyper-Calvinism and spent a few years – his best years defending the doctrine of justification by faith. But then he began to waver on that principle, sola fide, and and the principle of imputed righteousness. He was mesmerized for a while by N.T. Wright and this this popular scholarly fad of of, uh, covenantal nomism. Then he flirted with neo-orthodoxy, and nowadays he's a rabid ecumenist. He's never been settled on a single position for much longer than five or seven years, as long as I've known him. He was at one time a prolific writer, and every time he changed his theological perspective, he would write about his new position as if he had at last found the true answer to every metaphysical question that ever troubled humanity. And the problem was, with each new position, he he, he took on this fervent sort of categorical renunciation of his previous opinions. so if you just read all of his works in order it looks like he's made a career out of refuting himself and about 20 years ago now yeah about 20 years ago he wrote an article defending his, this sort of doctrinal instability that he had modeled in which he said he had come to the conclusion that the defining mark of true humility is a willingness to change your mind I wrote to him and pointed out that changing your mind cannot possibly be the essence of pure humility because Jesus was the humblest person who ever lived, and he never had any need to change his mind. I also pointed out that he was shortchanging some of the real heroes of the faith, like Charles Spurgeon, who preached the same doctrine from the start of his ministry when he was still a teenager until the end when he finally died. Same doctrine. And as far as I know, Spurgeon never had to revise or recant anything he ever taught because he didn't teach on something until he was certain and settled about it. He didn't preach on speculative stuff. He didn't teach on any doctrine that he hadn't thoroughly studied and settled in his heart and mind. And my friend said he didn't think that was a point in Spurgeon's favor. He said it smacks of arrogance to do that. But uh, think about this. Who is more arrogant? Is it the man who refuses to compromise even when popular thinking shifts against him? Or is it the guy who never really settles on any truth and yet he constantly wants to argue about everything anyway? you ever noticed that the people who keep making these major doctrinal shifts are always the ones who are the most fiercely contentious? Pathological wafflers. They cannot stand for other people to be certain. And all they're arguing is just a a desperate attempt to justify that kind of contempt. That is a, a vast poison today, even in the church, especially in the church. But scripture says that steadfastness is a distinctive mark of the truly righteous man. Listen to Spurgeon again. He said, brethren, aspire not to the artificial charity that grows out of uncertainty. There are saving truths And there are damnable heresies. Jesus Christ is not yea and nay. His gospel is not a cunning mixture of the gall of hell and the honey of heaven flavored to the taste of bad and good. There are fixed principles and revealed facts. And those who know anything experientially about divine things have cast their anchor down. And as they heard the chain running out, they joyfully said, This I know and have believed. And Spurgeon said, in this truth I stand fast and immovable. Blow winds and crack your cheeks. You will never move me from this anchorage. Whatsoever I have attained by the teaching of the Spirit, I will hold fast as long as I live. And I say, that's the Spirit. And the psalmist agrees. Here's what verse 3 of our psalm says about the godly man. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. So this is a a, a solid tree, it's a tree that flourishes. It's not a, a wild tree, it's a tree planted, chosen, considered as property, cultivated by God himself. Jesus said in Matthew fifteen thirteen, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. But this tree, this tree is secure, planted where it will flourish, by streams of water, And notice the word streams, plural, which may be a reference to the irrigation ditches that the Middle Eastern gardeners often dug between rows of trees. But in any case, what it means is it, it ensures that this tree has a constant supply of water that doesn't run out. Again... This is crucial to the promise of prosperity we find in this verse. God himself guarantees the perseverance and security of every plant he plants, every soul he elects. And he plants them by rivers of water to ensure that even in times of adversity, they're going to be sustained. They'll have sufficient water. And notice another contrast. The godly are are like a tree. The ungodly are like what? chaff you know what chaff is chaff is that hard outer shell that protects a grain of wheat and the chaff has to be removed before the wheat is useful and, and in fact if you look at a bit of chaff it looks a lot like a kernel of wheat it's shaped like that it's the same color but it's actually hollow dead good for nothing a tree challenges the storms Chaff is blown away by a slight wind. A tree is alive and living and growing. Chaff is dead and lifeless and unable to do anything other than decay. These days, I think they fill pillows with it, but that doesn't count. A tree has potential to reproduce. Chaff only gives that appearance. And above all, a tree bears fruit. Verse 3, it yields its fruit in its season. Fruit is expected, fruit is born, and it also comes in the time when it should come. This is the very same imagery Jesus was using when he spoke of the vine and the branches in John 15. The whole point of cultivating either vines or trees is the harvest of fruit. That's what it's all about. And the heavenly gardener plants and tends his trees so that they will bring forth fruit in their season. Here's, here's part of the point he's making. Meditation on the scriptures, while that's vital, it's not an end in itself. The end goal of all of our Bible study and all our meditation is not merely information or even enlightenment, but the end goal of our meditation is obedience. You don't fit the description of the man in Psalm 1 unless you are obedient. And notice again that the The prosperity spoken of in verse 3 is mentioned in the context of fruit-bearing. I can't stress enough that this speaks, first of all, about a spiritual prosperity. This is not about how much money you make. Spiritual prosperity, not merely success in business and other earthly pursuits, but spiritual prosperity. Luther said this. I'll quote Luther one more time. He said, With regard to this prospering, take heed that you understand this is not a carnal prosperity, Luther says. This prosperity is hidden prosperity, and it lies entirely secret in spirit. And therefore, if you do not have this prosperity, which is by faith, you should judge your prosperity to be the greatest failure of all. So the success that's described here is is primarily a life of spiritual fruitfulness, That's what's prosper. You can't measure it in financial terms, but in terms of spiritual fruit. And it's seen best of all in the person whose conduct is markedly different from that of the wicked. This promise of spiritual prosperity is repeatedly used in Scripture, by the way. It's one of the most blessed promises in Scripture. I already quoted Joshua 1.8, which is, again, a close parallel to this verse. Your way will be prosperous, and you will have good success. Of that promise, Spurgeon said this. I'll quote him again. He said, we must not always estimate the fulfillment of a promise by our own eyesight. We are so tried and troubled that our sight sees the very reverse of what that promise foretells. But to the eye of faith, this word is sure, and by it we perceive that our works do prosper, even when everything seems to go against us. It's not outward prosperity, which the Christian most desires and values. It is soul prosperity that he longs for. He said, we may fail in our earthly business, but even here, there is a true prosperity for it is often the soul's health that we would be poor and bereaved and persecuted. As there is a curse wrapped up in the wicked man's mercies, so there is a blessing concealed in the righteous man's crosses, losses, and sorrows. The trials of the saint are a divine husbandry by which he grows and brings forth abundant fruit. Husbandry, that's the, that's the old word for farming. So the whole point again is to produce fruit which is exactly the lesson Jesus taught using the imagery of the vine and the branches. Again, God often prunes us so that we bear more fruit. And although the pruning is sometimes painful, it doesn't detract in the least from our real prosperity. Rather, it adds to it. If you lose everything materially that you own, but your soul prospers, you have the only prosperity that really counts because it's eternal. So let's move on to the final point. We've seen that the godly person differs from the ungodly because his convictions are different, because his conduct is different, and now finally, third, if you're taking notes, his character is different. His character is different. We've already looked at the contrast between the tree and the chaff. The tree is steady and flourishing and alive and capable of bearing fruit. The chaff is worthless, dead, and unserviceable without substance it's easily carried away by the slightest wind notice also that the chaff is marked for ultimate doom the wind drives it away verse 4 and verse 5 goes on to say therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous and then verse 6 seals it the way of the wicked will perish the righteous on the other hand already enjoy divine blessings, eternal blessings. That was the starting point of the psalm. So in death, as in life, the ungodly and the unrighteous are totally and completely different. You know, what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. That's Second Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 16. And notice, throughout this psalm, the various contrasts between the character of the godly man and the unrighteous man's character. The godly man lives his life in the word. The ungodly lives in the world. The godly man is prospering. The ungodly man is perishing. The psalm begins with a commendation for godly people, It ends with a condemnation for ungodly people. The godly man's end is paradise. The end of the ungodly is perdition. And the verb tense in verse 6 is best translated like this. It's a present tense verb. The Lord is knowing the way of the righteous. Again, this implies that God himself sovereignly brings about the prosperity of the righteous person. This is God's work for us. Spurgeon wrote, the Lord is constantly looking on their way, and though it may be often in mist and darkness, yet the Lord sees it. If it be in the clouds and the tempest of affliction, he understands it. He numbers the hairs of our head. He will not suffer any evil to befall us. Job said, he knows the way I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. That didn't feel like truth when Job said it, but it was. God knows our way because he's planned it. And he's sovereignly seeing us through the way as he refines our character. And when he's finished, we will come forth as gold. may not feel like it right now, but as Job, it will turn out that way. And by contrast, the way of the wicked will perish. Not only will they themselves perish, but their way will perish with them. All those schemes, all the values, all the unbelief all the arrogant delusions, all the phony philosophies and worldviews of the wicked, all of that will be overthrown and eliminated, and there will be no remnant of evil in paradise. I like Graham Scroggie's summary of this psalm as an overview of the character of the righteous man. Scroggie was one of the men who succeeded Spurgeon as pastor of that church in London in the early part of the 20th century, and he wrote a great Book of Comments on the Psalms. And here's what he said about this one. He said, The righteous person will be characterized by vitality, a tree, security, planted, capacity by the rivers of water, fertility that bringeth forth his fruit, propriety in its season, perpetuity, its leaf also shall not wither, prosperity, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And Scroggy said, Is this a portrait of you? It is a portrait of your master. Scroggie asks a question that ought to make us uncomfortable when he says, is this a portrait of you? Because while this psalm portrays what each of us ought to aspire to, we need to confess that there really is only one person in all of human history who truly fit the description of this psalm. Scroggy got that right, too. Is this a portrait of you? He says, it is a portrait of your master. Don't miss that point christ is the true subject of this psalm and the psalm like the law itself sets a standard of righteousness that you and i can't possibly meet and if our eternal well-being depends on our own ability to meet the description of the righteous man who's described here we're doomed but again This describes the lifestyle we want to cultivate. This is the ideal to which we should aspire. These are qualities that ought to characterize our lives as believing men who seek to be more and more like Christ. But at the same time, we need to have the honesty and the true humility to confess that we constantly fall short. We are too easily influenced by the counsel of the wicked. We do at times stand in the way of sinners. Most of us have at some time or another taken our seat with the scoffers. I say that with shame. But I trust that's not what characterizes your life and colors your whole character. But still, we have to be honest. We don't really measure up. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, and what Jesus was saying there is expressly this, the best we can do is never good enough. It won't meet God's holy standard. Left to ourselves, all of us would be doomed. Galatians 3.10, it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Scripture says you violate one principle of God's law, it's as if you've violated all of it. And furthermore, according according to Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins shall die. There is no possibility for sinners to redeem themselves. You can't do enough good to atone for the evil that you've already done because God's law demands absolute perfection, and we've already ruined that. And that's where the gospel comes in. Christ lived his entire life in fulfillment, perfect fulfillment, of everything God's law demands, everything this psalm describes. He was the living fulfillment of it all the truly righteous man, and as such, he certainly is our model, a pattern to follow, but he's much more than that. For those who trust him alone as Savior, he is our substitute, both in life and in death. First Peter two twenty two says, He committed no sin. Hebrews seven twenty six. He was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. First John three five, in him there is no sin. In Acts thirteen twenty eight, Paul says those who examined Christ during his trials found in him no guilt worthy of death. And even Pilate, who ultimately gave him over to be crucified, Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. Jesus didn't deserve to die, but his death was predetermined by God to atone for the sins of his people, 1 Peter 3.18. Christ suffered for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Romans 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 1, 4, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. So his death was a payment for the sins of his people. He was their substitute. He took the penalty they deserve. I think most of us understand that. But Here's what you need to understand as well. In precisely the same way, his perfect Psalm 1 life counts for those who put their trust in him. He lived his life to provide for us the perfect righteousness that we could never attain. And his righteousness covers us like a spotless garment. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. In other words, here's what scripture is saying. By faith, we are united with Christ so that his righteousness is imputed to us, credited to our account, in precisely the same way our sins are imputed to him, charged to his account, and he paid the price for it in full. So his righteousness is credited to our account in return. You could never work hard enough to earn that. You can't deserve it. You will never deserve it. But Romans 4, 5 says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Righteousness. And so the righteousness that is credited to our account gives us a standing before God that we frankly don't deserve. But Jesus earned it for us on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the gospel's promise of eternal life is rooted in those truths. If Christ's righteousness isn't imputed to me, I have no hope of heaven because there is no other source of perfect righteousness for sinners. If you feel the vileness of your sin and the weight of your guilt, you actually are at an advantage over the person who reads Psalm 1 and convinces himself that, yeah, I measure up. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Paul said, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world To save sinners. Luke 5.32, Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, he calls us as sinners to turn from our sin and trust in him alone for salvation. John 11.25, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And John 6.47, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's the promise of the gospel. Now, most of you, I I assume, have believed the gospel. Keep the focus of your faith on Christ. Again, he is the true subject of this psalm. This is a description of him. He is the true and living embodiment of the person who is described here. And as such, he is the ideal whom you and I should seek to emulate. Eternal life is the promise of the gospel, but Christ's likeness is the goal and the end of our salvation. We should be progressing towards that. That is true, true manhood. That is true masculinity. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And so press on toward that goal for the prize of the upward call of God. Let's pray. Father, we stand here with deep gratitude that you gave your only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. May we keep our eyes fixed firmly on him whom this psalm describes. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Keep us from walking in the counsel of the wicked. Keep us from standing in the way of sinners. And conform us to the perfect likeness of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.